Welcome back, listeners, to a new episode of JCOS Presents Sound Sociology in conversation with, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Oliver. Welcome. Welcome. Hello. Uh, nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Um, uh, Dr. Oliver, or I would like to say, uh, it's absolutely brilliant to have you on the podcast because um, we're going to um, kind of delve into a really big topic, um, something in sociology we look at in year 13, which is is sociology a science? So I thought it'd be great to have you on the podcast to maybe talk about the differences between how sociologists go and conduct research under the banner of being a science and how actual sciences conduct a scientific investigation. Um, I guess I'll kick off with, what's, um, so what is your definition of science? Well, um, if you do any Googling and, and look up what science is, um, you would find that it's said to be a, you know, a set of sort of definitive facts and, and uh, a body of knowledge that surrounds a certain topic and that there is also a scientific method where you will test things, so you come up with a prediction and then you would actually test that prediction and either find that you have evidence to prove or disprove that prediction. Um, so, you know, that's very much the kind of web definition. And I thought a lot about this since we spoke initially, and I think I see science, or the reason I like science and like to do the, the job I do, is because I like answers. I like puzzles and solutions. So I like the fact that you can say that, you know, the, the, the reason that we might we feel panic is because of a surge of adrenaline in our body. You know, there's, it's sort of, here's this thing that happens and here's the mechanism behind what makes it happen. It's, um, it's interesting because in sociology we have these kind of two schools of thoughts um, in terms of how to conduct research. There's a, what we call positivist type of research, which is really driven by quantitative research and quantitative research methods more particularly, which I would say is probably really akin to traditional sciences. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, but then we also have interpretivism, which mm. is um, a more qualitatively driven piece of research. So using things like unstructured interviews, observations, um, open questionnaires. Is there ever a space for using those types of research methods within science? I would say absolutely definitely that, that, that there is. Um, so for my, um, my doctoral training, I actually studied engineering um, and um, the, uh, engineering under the umbrella of environmental technology. And um, Professor Roland Clift was one of the course leaders for us. And he, had, he was quite famously at the time banding about this uh, idea that the, the engineer of the future is female uh, because she will uh, look at things from um, a more human perspective and a wider angle and a more holistic sort of um, sort of angle and so within the kind of taught aspects of, of, of that course that, that I did we studied research methods and, and it was all delivered by um, by social science school at, at university and and I suppose going in as a pure scientist, as a, as a graduate with a degree in, in pure science, I would have been a little bit sniffy about that sort of thing. But actually when you're looking at really complicated things and environmental science and how to save the planet, which is tied up with you know, changing human behaviour, 
it's phenomenally complicated and you you can't just look at pure numbers because I think pure numbers can tell you so much for example we can tell very categorically that uh, anthropogenic carbon emissions are causing the climate to change you know and there are only a very few people that will still refuse to accept that there is a, a cause and effect link there but how you actually get people to engage with that and see it as a problem and alter their behavior for the good of the planet is is not something that can be answered purely by numbers so i do think that yes there are spaces for um plenty of, of uh, qualitative research where you know you, you do interviews and you can get really interesting information out of that it's um it, it's making me think well, when you were saying that the when piece of research is done, whether it is social sciences, whether it's uh, natural sciences, we have these moments where we see a change in our, in the way that we've understood something. Mm. Um, Thomas Kuhn calls it paradigm shifts. Um, how does the natural sciences go about explaining these changes in, in thoughts, like going from this is a fact, this is the way we understood this issue, to then going well actually hold on a minute it's this is there ever a kind of recognition of of like of this was the wrong thinking now this is the right thinking um i i'm sure that that happens off the top of my head i can't really think of any uh, any sort of examples but i suppose what what you get on reflection um quite often is you say oh well actually we perhaps did did the wrong thing there and, and we should have done something differently. And I, one of my current bugbears is the ridiculous "we follow the science" phrase that the government are using for the you know response to the pandemic. Yeah. Because that's just a nonsense. Um, now there's all sorts of issues around actually they're selecting the people to be on the committees, and so actually they're probably driving the science in inverted commas. Um, and, and actually you, it, scientific research needs to be done independently mm-hmm. and where you have political pressure that research cannot be independent yeah. um, but also there is no how do you know what the science is until the pandemic is over we will be able to look back and do plenty of analysis on, on, on COVID stats and how the disease took off and where it spread to. And we'll be able to say, actually our approach wasn't, I, I suspect we'll be able to say our approach in this instance wasn't terribly clever. And they're already talking about the fact that maybe we should have locked down earlier. Um, so things do move, but it quite often, it's retrospectively when you're able to actually see how things played out, I think. I think that's where it's really... This is where I start to see the, the, the kind of overlaps between the two methodologies mm. of our respective subjects. Like the importance of reflection and the importance of evaluating the processes that we've done to try and get to the end goal. Mm. Um, we spoke before the podcast of trying to ground for our listeners like a way which we could explain how research is done in our in yep. our subjects. Um, we spoke about trying... Well, if we were... Uh, going to talk about how to get girls into STEM subjects. Mm. Uh, Obviously, as a uh, natural scientist, um, and myself as a social scientist, like, how would we go about finding out out about that? 
Uh, so for the listeners, what we're going to try and do now is explain uh, the approaches we would take kind of simultaneously at the same time mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully you stay with us all, along the way. So in this, and I know this, this, this came up uh, because, um, you know, some of the some of the sixth form girls have been, you know, saying to us in science that they think that there is, uh, they think there is a shortage of girls feeling like they can go into STEM subjects at JCOS. So that's sort of, you know, that's where I'm coming from. Is I'm interested in, is there a problem? Because if there is, we need to fix it. Um, so, but actually, the is there a problem question would be the the first one that I would set out to to answer. Um, and so that for me then becomes about numbers. So, you know, I, I, I want to know how many girls do pick uh, the separate science GCSEs, for example. I want to know how many girls out of the total sixth form cohort actually opt to study biology and physics and chemistry and psychology because psychology is part of our faculty. So, you know, we count that as a science. Um, so I look, so I look at numbers. Um, and I'd look at trends over time. So has you know have things shifted? So was it any different, for example, when uh, Mr. McCauley was head of the science faculty? Has it changed now? There is a female, you know, in charge of the science faculty. I have no idea whether that makes any difference. And those are those are kind of concrete questions that I would set out to answer. Um, that think, would be my those would be my starting points. I think again it would be very similar in sociology using. The identification of a social problem, and in this sense, uh, the amount of girls going into STEM subjects, or the the perceived uh, barriers in, in girls going into STEM subjects. The I think where it would differ for sociologists, and especially if we were adopting a, uh, an interpretivist approach, is we would probably well, we would move away from using statistics and using numbers and collection of quantitative data and more towards maybe sitting down trying to um, figure out which one of the qualitative methods would be best a focus group a mm. uh, one-on-one unstructured interview or maybe even going into lessons and observing how lessons unfold over 60 minutes and seeing um, the participation levels of girls to boys in when there's a practical element to it. Now lesson. would you count those? Because I would think if I was sat in the back of a lesson mm. um, looking at participation levels, I would probably be counting how many times the girls put their hand up and how many times the boys put their hand up. Yeah, I think that's absolutely one of the one of the ways that it would um, would be tallied up. So then it falls into the you know falls into a quantitative way there uh, into a quantitative way of collecting data. But what you can't quantify is you can't quantify how a room feels. Yeah. So, you know, and, th- and that's that's the bit where the, just having a, a, a purely rigid scientific number-based approach, I think, I, I think it, it, it limits what you're able to extract and how you're able to understand a problem. I think that, that also, like further to that, it's that, you know, as you say, the feel of a classroom, but also like the interactions of seeing how boys and boys interact, how boys and girls, girls and girls, and even teachers to students and students to the teacher. Um, you know, in sociology, you know, there's many a study done and looking at the way that teachers, in, uh, qualitative research that's looked at the way that teachers interact with boys and girls mm. and the type of language used by teachers to interact or the expectation. Mm. And those are quite 
warm, fuzzy, it's not warm, but slightly fuzzy concepts to try and pin mm. down. Well, doesn't it come down to opinion? Sort of, you know, sort of, and, and actually how... Because I know, having sat in the same talk with colleagues, you know, nothing to do with this particular issue, but, but listening to things, and, you know, we've been sat there listening to exactly the same thing, and we both walk away and have a completely different interpretation... Of, of what we've just heard at the same time in the same room yeah. and that is from that, the same angle so it makes it even more tricky I think when you're conducting research to like well how do you try and make sure everyone's on an even start before before you started the, before you've even started the research because what other previous experiences influences have mm-hmm. shaped that research whether it is a natural scientist or a sociologist in their understanding of, of what they've seen mm. um, and I think that's a really difficult uh, path to tread because once you've kind of invested into the research you're then kind of are you almost then confirming like okay I'm bringing this baggage with me mm. in, in my understanding of, of how I'm going to interpret or how I'm going to uh, decide what even if it was quantitative like oh, well, what are the, the indicators I'm going I'm going yeah, to am I use. going to count when a girl just puts her hand up, or has she got to actually speak? Has she got to be chosen? It's, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of things. Um, so it seems like we're both very similar at the beginning, um, mm. and I, and I think I it's the the similarities in our approach probably to an extent come from the fact that I'm not I've had training beyond that of of just pure science mm-hmm. actually. Um, so I think that you know that does influence. I, I can absolutely see the value in the more um, in the more qualitative stuff. But where, as a scientist, I then struggle is that okay, you've got all these qualitative observations, but then that's fine. But then actually, all I'm then giving you is is kind of my opinion mm-hmm. about all that stuff that I've that I've seen and heard. So. So you straddle both sides of the of the of the, of the quantitative qualitative understanding. Mm. I'm interested. Have you ever um, been with someone who is very uh, very much an advocate for purely quantitative? And if so, um, what have you done to try and help that person to understand? Like you've got to uh, look at things from another angle. Um. I think I think probably not. Uh, I, I just haven't had that experience. I just haven't been with somebody who 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 is that dogmatic, um, because it, it depends to an extent on what research you're doing. You know, if you're like I did for many years um, in a black laboratory, you're measuring a light. Well, you don't care about what the light's thinking, how it's feeling. You just want to know, you know, how much light it's putting out on that day. So, so it is purely about, you know, numbers and a, and a, a sort of pure me- mechanistic scientific um, kind of approach. And, there, and there's nothing really to be discussed there. Yeah. Um, whereas. Whereas if you are trying to unpack and unpick something much more complex um, that has a that has a human element to it, then well, I think you're just missing a trick if you don't want to, you know, delve into things and think about why. Um, so, but yes, I've never, I've never, I suppose I've never met or worked with a, a sort of sociologist or a scientist on a problem that is anything beyond 
numbers and measurements. Um, okay, so have but I guess I'm trying to think, like, what would you do if you did come across someone mm. who was um, that way inclined, being that dogmatic? What would you do to try and encourage them to see uh, to see the multiple views on things? I suppose it would just be wanting to ask them, you know, ask them probing, probing and leading questions that can't be answered with just numbers. So, you know, okay, this is all very well. So, so let's say that that you know we do do a lot of counting, and we find that that boys do speak more in class at JCOS, and and that that is having an effect and putting girls off doing STEM. Now, I really, really hope that that's not the case. But let's see, say that numbers suggest that that is the case. Well, that's all very interesting. And so. And so. And so. And and I think that was that would be what I would just throw out. Is it? And so. Because it's all very well knowing it, but like that would be a problem that needs fixed. So how are you going to fix it? And you ain't going to fix it if you don't know why mm-hmm. it's there or how it's how it's evolved or what what the boys are thinking or why the girls aren't piping up. So and so. I think it. Because it's got me going in my head, the same, thinking the same question to myself. Let, let's say I'm representing like the purely qualitative researcher who is only interested in the in the in the whys and, and rather than the, the trends. And it's making me go, well, what do what do those type of researchers miss out on? And it's it's probably you know it's, it's that ability to ground the findings and have some kind of empirical data to go. This is this is why I'm coming to this conclusion. Mm. Uh, and I think. As you say, without without the, the quantitative element, it, it is just people's opinions mm. fundamentally, mm-hmm. um, and that opinion may be totally biased mm-hmm. and, and and may have may have just just missed something. So there's a, there's a, a two thick form students like I think of who came to me to tell me that you know there absolutely is a problem and they had absolutely felt that they didn't want to do STEM subjects because of because of boys now. If, if that is a widespread opinion, that's a problem. But maybe, and I don't yet know the answer to this question, maybe it was just because of those particular students' experiences, and maybe it was because of the classes they were in. Maybe they had some very large male characters in their classes, and actually if you didn't happen to be in a class with that same large male character, you, would, you wouldn't feel the same. And so if you don't look at the numbers, mm-hmm. you know, if you just did focus interviews with those two girls you think my goodness it's terrible I think this is where what you know one of the issues with interpretivist based research is, is the sample size that you end up choosing and mm. you know anything that is going to use unstructured interviews focus groups observations it's small scale yeah, in nature absolutely. so it's really difficult to kind of pull out a generalisation pull out something that's representative mm. because you just you know it could be just a dynamic in that one classroom mm. yeah absolutely um, so do, you, do most sociologists work from both perspectives? Because I, I, I'm not going to pretend that I've ever read a sociology <laughs> paper. I think it, um, so, you know, it's interesting because if I think about the way I end up teaching the subject, teaching that particular topic in sociology, I, I probably end up being quite reductionist at times and turning it into a us versus them. Mm, mm. But the reality is sociologists have to be aware of both sides. It, it's, mm. it's almost foolhardy not to be. Yeah. So in the same way, you know, you've said, like, you haven't come across that with individuals within the natural science because they you need to have that awareness. I think sociologists do have that awareness. 
um, and I would say very much in modern day research, um, anything kind of the last 20, 30 years, if you went back probably previous and look at some of the studies that maybe you know we do on the GCSE that can go back as far as the 40s and 30s you know there's some there's somewhat of a, a zealot approach in being oh we use closed questionnaires mm. to collect and I would always say to those students like so what are the O3 uh, you know evaluation critiques of it it's, mm-hmm. I think the way that methodological research um, processes have moved on over the last 20, 30 years is to take more of a kind of triangulation type approach. Um, does that, I mean, triangulation, um, listeners, those who are not familiar with it, it's like the, the approach of taking mixed method approach, so mm. taking quantitative and qualitative. Mm. Probably just stepping on the toes of the previous question, is that a term that's used in, in natural sciences at all? Uh, not, or something similar? Not one that I've not one that I've come across, but I have been out of the loop actively doing research for, you know, Sometime, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's. I think I feel like the way that modern sociology research has gone now is to is to take a triangulation type approach. Mm. And I think that the, that the school that I do my doctorate to it was it was an engineering doctorate in environmental technology, um, and and it was and the the staff that they had in the school mm. were pure scientists mechanical engineers, um, sociologists, um, psychologists, so it was, so it was a really, the, the University of Surrey, um, it's a really interesting bunch of people because they really, really come from total different, um, different disciplines and so doing their collaborative research, um, there's one chap who's, it, it was all about like risk management and so it's just fascinating, well an ethicist, that's a word but a chap who was interested in ethics so you know that was a um when did I start that back in 2000 odd yeah so 20 odd years ago you know and that was a fairly new um kind of university department that was really multidisciplinary I think that's the future I think that's the way things have to move especially to solve complicated questions that involve any sort of human behaviour. I couldn't agree more. Like, you know, we've grounded everything in, or tried to ground everything in, you know, uh, a difficult topic of girls in STEM or encouraging more girls in STEM. Mm. It's making me think of um, Matthew Sai, it's the power of divergent uh, of divergent thinking, um, who was a, he was a, a Commonwealth gold winner, badminton player, now writes for The Guardian, writes all, all loads of things. Uh, listeners, really interesting guy, lots of books out there on him. But he talked, uh, one of his most recent books is The Power of Divergent Thinking, and the, you know, the way to sell, solve social problems, case in point, girls in STEM, is to not take just a one stance approach on it, but to have multiple, as you've said, mm. take an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approach on it, because those different perspectives allow us to understand angles that we might be blindsided by, by our own bias. That you just literally never would have thought of. Um, coming towards the back end of the podcast now I found this a really interesting and fascinating conversation because we've really delved deep into the whole science versus sociology debate and I don't think it's you know as I say for as reductionist I can be sometimes when I'm teaching this and saying oh it's sociology science (laughs) I think ultimately you know the 
a, a mixed methods approach mm. is what needs to be taken when conducting any form of especially as you say any form of research that involves humans at the end of the day mm. um, in terms of where does research go in dealing with social problems regarding you know, dealing with human beings are there any other final thoughts you, you have on the issue outside of like it being a multidisciplinary approach think that I would, from, from the experiences that I've had, I would encourage people to talk to colleagues outside of their discipline. Um, so, you know, so if you're, in, you know, in sick form at the moment, actually, you know, have a chat with those, uh, those pupils that are studying subjects that you're not studying, because you just might learn something from them. Uh, you know, keep, keep an open mind. Um, and, uh, yeah, don't, don't be close to, to, to different approaches. Don't get dogmatic about how you how you do things. Um, and then, uh, which I think possibly another podcast about just you know, don't be, uh, don't allow yourself to be unduly influenced by uh, factors that might be wishing to direct your research. Fantastic. <laughs> um, we uh, before we started recording, I I always finish with my one standard question. I always remind the listeners, uh, remind the person who I'm interviewing. Um, do you have any recommended books, films, or journals? I know at the beginning you're like, I need to maybe have a thing. <laughs> Is there anything that's come to mind at all? Um, so when I was um, in sick form, I used to I used to read New Scientist, and you can't read it religiously cover to cover, but I would really encourage you to just pick it up and read the odd article because it's written for a, uh, it's written for a generic audience so even if you're not studying science um, you should be able to understand it and there's there's just there's it's so much interesting stuff in there um, and I I even remember writing in one of my university finals about one of the articles that I'd read when I was in year 12. So, you know, because it was a piece of research that was interesting, I just happened to remember the name of the people that had done it and I wrote about it in a, in a university university exam. So, it, you know, that can be a real investment um, for you. I would also encourage you to um, to get properly stuck into Radio 4 um, and the, the, the podcast that they do. You know, there's, there's all sorts of science podcasts, there's Science Now, and actually there's, there's loads of interesting short programs that you can listen to that talk about a massive range of issues um, you know and it's it's pretty well curated um, and it's an easy way in the podcast because you can stick it in your ears while you're walking along or you're on the bus or you're on the train or wandering around uh, around the shops or whatever it is you happen to be doing so yeah easy wins to broaden your mind that's right it's been absolutely amazing having you on today um, listeners you've been listening to Jacobs Presents Sound Sociology in conversation with, and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye for now. Bye. <laughs>